And we've been preaching on the second coming, and I realize that it might have helped a little bit if I could have got sensational and maybe talked about a couple of them beasts in the book of Revelation or that bottomless pit and some of them creatures and what 666 means and all that other stuff. That might have made it a little more interesting. But I don't think it would have helped you where you're at. Uh, because I'm more concerned about the beasts that are in here than the beasts that are out there. And I sort of figure if I can get these beasts settled in here and dealt with, I won't have to worry about them beasts that are out there. And uh, so we've kind of been dealing with the second coming where the rubber meets the road. That's right where we're sitting. Because I believe that's how it's going to uh, come to pass. And we notice that I have been preaching on the many faces of Christ at His coming. And, of course, we saw that he's coming as a thief, and we're going to have to watch with a, a guarded readiness. And, of course, he's, he's not a convict, he's not a criminal, uh, but he's coming, and if you're not ready, he's going to be the, the thief. And then we notice that he's, uh, he's coming as a person. Uh, we have to have the eyes of the Galilean looking at each other to realize that The way we treat each other is the way we treat Jesus. And He's going to represent everybody we've ever dealt with when we get to heaven. That's a, that is a weighty thought, isn't it? And uh, then we noticed that uh, last night He is an investor. Uh, he's invested uh, in creation. He's invested in salvation. And He wants something out of it. He wants an increase. He wants a profit. And, of course, he's going to come and compare the books as to see how we have invested, as has been mentioned tonight, in our time, in our talents, uh, with our money, uh, with our abilities, with all those things that God has gifted us with in life, we're going to have to face him with in eternity. And, again, he expects, as the business God he is, he expects that there would be Grace uh, that has been grown in and faith that has been added to and that, uh, that uh, we are not left where we were when he gave and started the investment. Uh, someone has said, God will accept you where you are, but he doesn't intend on leaving you there. Uh, there has to be an increase. And he wants an increase. I, I got a little poem here that I love. I have quoted or read this poem to myself probably 25 times, and it blesses me every single time I read it. And it has this emphasis of our duty and our responsibilities. It's not what I'm preaching on tonight. But it has a, a little, uh, a little uh, word here at the, at the end of it, a postscript. It says, If a man is doing his duty, however simple that duty may be, whether it is five talents, two talents, or one talent, If he's doing his duty, however simple that duty may be, on the day Christ comes, there will be joy for him. And this poem has, has, was written uh, with the setting and surroundings of the slave days back, uh, back before the Civil War in the South. And it is a Negro poet, a black man, that wrote it with the idea of, of his... His duty and his responsibility, not to his owner, just to his owner, but his, 
his duty and responsibility to God, and he wanted to be dedicated to it, even though it may be a simple job when he came. I, I love this. Listen to it. There's a king, and there's a captain high, and he's coming by and by. And he'll find me hoeing cotton when he comes. You can hear his legions charging in the regions of the sky. And he'll find me hoeing cotton when he comes. He's a man they thrust aside who was tortured till he died. And he'll find me hoeing cotton when he comes. (laughs) He was hated and rejected. He was scorned and crucified. But he'll find me hoeing cotton. When he comes, when he comes, when he comes, he'll be crowned by saints and angels when he comes. They'll be shouting loud hosanna to the man that men denied. And I'll kneel among my cotton when he comes. Oh, isn't that wonderful? <laughs> Woo! <laughs> Just hold your cotton. Stay with your row. And looking for the Lord to come. And he said, when he comes, I'll just bow among my cotton. Whew, I love that, don't you? Just take your one talent, your two talents, or your five talents and keep on a hoeing. He's a coming one of these days. But tonight I want to direct our attention to Matthew chapter 25, verse 1 down through verse number 13. And I want to emphasize another of the many faces of Christ at His return. And I want to say that Jesus is coming with the face of a bridegroom. He is coming with the face of a bridegroom. I mentioned in the beginning of these sermons that over 2100 times the Bible tells us He's coming. For every one time it speaks of His first coming, it speaks of His second coming eight times. And one out of every 30 verses in the New Testament says Jesus is coming. So He wants us to know that He's coming. And we don't have any excuse for not knowing He's coming because He's filled His Word with that great truth as much as anything else. He said, I'm coming, I'm coming, I'm coming, I'm coming. And I want us to notice how that he is coming, according to these verses, with the face of a bridegroom. Now, let's begin in verse 1. Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. And five of them were wise, and five were foolish. That word foolish is the word from which we get our word moron. They that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. 
And at midnight there was a cry made. Behold, the bridegroom cometh. Go ye out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said unto the wise, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. But the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest there be not enough for us and you, but go ye rather to them that sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and they that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. Afterward came also the other virgins, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. Watch therefore, for ye know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. Jesus is coming, but He's coming with the face of a bridegroom. Now you and I living in the Western world, when we read this parable, we think of weddings that we have been to. And every wedding that I have been privileged to be a part of, when they played the wedding march as they called it, the bridegroom didn't move. It was the bride that came to the groom. But you've got to understand that in Bible times and still in the Middle East, because while I was in Egypt preaching for ten days, I saw one of these marches by night. I didn't know what it was. Had their lights and there were several headed in, the, in a certain direction. And I asked the preacher who was an Egyptian. I said, what is all the commotion over there? He said, that is a a wedding march. The groom and the bride headed to the wedding feast, still taking place in this day, as Jesus describes it here in this text, how he, as, as the bridegroom, is headed out for this great marriage and, of course, the attendants are these virgins who are waiting upon Him that they might be involved in this and be a part of this this marriage feast. But what I want to point out to you from our text is that we have these ten attendants who seem to all be ready and waiting on the bridegroom to go to this wedding. It all seemed that way until the end. And in the end, the five are shocked to find out that they were not genuinely and fully ready for the coming of the bridegroom. And my emphasis tonight is this genuine readiness for the coming of the bridegroom or for the Christ who is coming for us. Do we really possess or do we only profess? 
Is it something that we have in the beginning that's going to work in the end? They had no inside supply. And so they did not have what it would take when the bridegroom came. They had no genuine readiness. Now, there are only two things that I want to point out to you tonight concerning this matter of a genuine readiness. I want us to notice what I call the the very uh, comparisons and the likenesses of the foolish and the wise. We're going to see their similarities. And then in our second thought, we're going to look at those things that are unlike. We're going to look at the contrast and we're going to look at the dissimilarities. Understanding what the difference was between the wise and the unwise to help us to be prepared for the coming of the Lord when He comes as a bridegroom. Let's look at the text and look at this matter of their comparisons and how they seem to be almost alike. There is a significant difference, but yet as we read this text, you must follow it closely to see the difference. And to the casual eye in that day, I'm sure, and in this day, there would have there would have been able, you would not have noticed the difference. It's sort of like the parable of the wheat and the tares. Not being able to make the distinction. Here we have this this comparison. We notice how they are alike. And if you look into the text, there are points of likeness as far as these ten attendants are concerned. They have the same name. They are virgins. They seem to wear the same dress. They are on the same errand. They are going out to meet the bridegroom, the Scripture said. They all have their lamps. And thus they have many features that are in common. So much so that it would be difficult for the average person to be able to tell the difference or to find out that they are unlike. Now I want to point out to you two or three ways in which these wise and these unwise seem to be alike. Talking about this this, uh, genuine readiness. They are alike, first of all, as far as their activities are concerned. Look, if you will, at the text there, and I notice some verbs that indicate how active they are. It looks to me like one is as active, as active as the other is because they all do basically the same thing, almost. Verse 1 tells us they took. It also says they went, showing action. Verse 3 tells us they took. Verse 7 says they arose. And verse 7 also says they trimmed their lamps. And so they are... Very active. They seem to be engaged in basically the same thing. 
They are alike in their activities. It's amazing how religion can cookie-cut us and make us so much alike. Uh, Whether it is Baptists or Methodists, or if we hang around one another long enough, we'll sort of kind of blend in and we will become alike. And then we begin to engage in the same activities. Maybe it is singing in the choir. Uh, Maybe it is participating in Sunday school. Uh, Maybe it is giving as far as the offering is concerned. Uh, Whatever that activity may be, we become involved in all of the same activities. The great burden of my heart when I pastored is the, was the fear, and I, I mean this from a, uh, from a heart of passion, was the fear that I was going to face many of those people that I was preaching to that were active in the church operations, but I was going to meet them not as God's children, but those who were not God's children because they were not genuine live ready. And preached on many a Sunday morning when the most of the people come. Realizing that many of those folks may not be going to heaven. They have the activities. The danger of religion is it's it's very active. The Bible said in Matthew... Chapter 7, many will say unto me, Jesus said, many will say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name cast out devils, and in thy name done many wondrous works? Then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart ye from me, ye workers of iniquity. My goodness, how could he call them such... Such uh, sin, uh, sinners, uh, workers of iniquity, when they are so engaged and so involved in religious activity. You'd be amazed at how many people think they're going to heaven because of some activity that they've been involved in. It reminds me of Cain and his little garden. He thought he would be ready to meet the Lord by bringing the sacrifices of his hands and the Lord would not receive them. Activity is not enough for that day. There is a danger in religious activity. They are alike as far as their activities are concerned. They are alike as far as their appearances are concerned. Again, it seems as though their lives are on the same plane because of the title that is given them as virgins. Morally, they seem to be alike. Their looks seem to be alike. They all have lamps that seem to be alike. And they all seem to be in the same place as far as location. They seem to be alike in that. They are all in the same place waiting for the coming of the bridegroom. They are not only all active, but they all seem to appear to look alike. But that reminds me of Satan himself when the Bible said he is able to change himself into an angel of light. 
Just because we may dress alike, just because we may act alike, just because we may, as we come together, may not be able to tell a difference between each other, does not mean that we are all ready for the coming of the Lord. They have an alikeness. They are alike in their activities. They are alike in their appearances. They seem to be alike in their affections. Their very zeal as they take their lamps and as they they go forth indicated with energy and as they look for the coming of uh, of the of the of the the bridegroom it seems as though that they they have this emotion about them this zeal about them but that also reminds me of Judas who was numbered among the twelve who kissed the Son of God but it was a kiss of death. They are so much alike. But Judas was so much like a disciple, the disciples couldn't tell the difference. Wheat is so much like tare that the the owner of the field said, you can't tell the difference. Satan is so much like an angel of light. My wife, through the years, has been a pretty good farmer but she has not allowed me in the garden by myself because she knows that I can't tell the difference. Isn't it amazing how so many plants that are productive and produce fruit have have weeds that look like them? And early on, you could just easily pull up that weed and not pull up the corn. (laughs) You've seen that weed? What's the name of that weed that looks like corn? Huh? <laughs> That's why she don't allow me in there. Because I'm liable to pull up the wrong one. And uh, many similarities as far as the plant life is concerned. But yet they are worlds apart. They are different. Even though they are so alike. When I went out west in Colorado, uh, I went to many of those old mines and places where they dug for gold. And, of course, on through to California, they dug for gold, the gold rush. And some of them found some gold. Many of them found some gold. But while I was out there, they showed me some stuff that looked like gold. And there was more people that found it than found the real gold. Do you know what it was called? It was called fool's gold. It seemed to look like it. But if you took it and put it in the fire, it was not the same thing. I thought about uh, this matter of diamonds. Boy, they diamonds are, are, are priceless. I mean, they are high. But I've got a recommendation for you men if you want to buy your wife a diamond. Just don't tell her and go down there to the cheap part of the store. And unless she takes it and has it inspected by a professional, she'll never know the difference. <laughs> it looks like a diamond, but it's what's it called, zirconia? <laughs> Nobody wants that stuff, but I don't know why. You can't tell the difference, and it's a whole lot cheaper. And surely ain't nobody going to come out and ask you if that's real. <laughs> but it's not real, but it looks so much alike. But it is very unalike. And here we see these Ten attendants, these ten virgins that seem so much alike, alike in so many areas. 
But yet I want you to notice that there, there is not only a comparison and a likeness, but there is a contrast. There is a way in which they are unalike. There is a dissimilarity, and that's what I'm interested in. The Scriptures let us, lets us know that they had lamps, but we find out they didn't have any light, any oil. That would seem to concern them least as they left, concerned him most. That's why they were foolish. They didn't get the oil. And what they did not have, they could not borrow, and it could not be bought. They looked in vain to men to find the grace which God alone could supply. It was that which was not on the inside that left them on the outside. There was not an in-depth, real, genuine supply of what they needed. But you know, it wasn't until we get down to verse number 6 that we really realize this because they all seem to be flocked together. But it is here where we see the contrast, the importance. I want to emphasize that. The scripture said, and at midnight. We notice a crisis comes into the situation. It becomes a crisis to them at midnight. The time in which you need the most light. They have no light. Someone has said, we only have as much salvation as can be commanded in the hour of crises. How true that is. Oh, we can talk about how saved we are right now, but is what you've got now going to work if Jesus comes tonight? That's the important thing. <laughs> you can tell me all about the experiences you've had and all the prayers you've prayed and, and, and all these other things, but all I want to know is, is it going to work at midnight? The difference is they didn't have what would work at midnight. The crises came. They didn't have it. Now we know there is a difference. <laughs> I want what it takes when he comes, don't you? Amen. I want it. I was uh, visiting many years back. I knocked on a door and... When I knocked on the door, a man came and I asked him if he was a Christian. And I ought to knew something was up. His eyes got real spooky. And he said, oh, yes. He said, let me tell you about it. I said, well, I'd like to hear about it. He said, well, one day I was sitting in my chair over there. And he said, that big bay window there, I saw a flash of light on the outside. I got up and ran to the front door and I opened it and something like a BB hit me in the chest. And he said, I've been saved ever since. Well, as far as I could figure out, the kids in the neighborhood were pulling a prank. Shining a flashlight through his window, he went to the door, they shot him with a BB gun. But how sad it's going to be. I'm going to tell you something. I'd have to have a little more than a flashlight and a BB to be ready for the coming of the Lord. 
They had a crisis, and it was the crisis that shows us that there was really a difference, that there, there was really an unlikeness. There was really a dissimilarity, though we could not dep- depict it early on unless we looked real close. We can see it very clearly now. What others may not have paid any attention to becomes very evident. Hey, where's your oil? They don't have any. The contrast is seen in the crises. The contrast is seen in the cry because at midnight there was a cry made. <laughs> and it was this cry that, that revealed the truth and the transparency. It all came out. The while on the outside they look, they look so much alike and they look so prepared. They had nothing on the inside. And it is, it, beca- it has become transparent to everybody. You know, I believe that, that uh, one of the great aspects of walking with God is the more you walk with Him, the more transparent you become. Because you don't have anything to hide. You don't have to have the long robes of the Pharisees. You, you don't have to continue and constantly try to make sure that no one sees your faults and, and your failures and, and your shortcomings and you just kind of close everything off as religion does. But as you walk with Him, the Word of God makes you transparent. The light of God makes you transparent. As it shines into your heart and it reveals to you who you really are, you find yourself standing up telling other folks what God showed you about yourself. You just go blabbing on yourself. <laughs> and you become transparent. I don't want to wait till the last minute to find out what really is not, do you? I don't want to hide everything to the last moment and then find out that I didn't have what it took. But I want the transparency of the light of God and the Word of God to so shine in my heart that I'll know if I've got what it takes. There will be this revelation that shines through me, not only that God can see and that I can see, but that others can see. It's not the person that seems so holy and the person that seems so righteous and and the person that, that seems to be so religious that necessarily may be ready. But it's the person that you can walk into their life and out of their lives and, and, and you can see so much about them and even you can see things that maybe you don't think is right, but you can see it. It is there before all men. It is not something that is hid. One of the things that I love about God's people, God's real people that walk with God, is that the more you hang around them, the more you can depict that there are some imperfections. But the blessedness of it is, it is not hid. Now, it's not something that they are gloating in or that they are proud of, but it is something that can easily be seen. There is a transparency to it. But if you have to wait to the end, as you have cloaked everything, and then God's cry, God's word in the end, has to become the truth that makes you transparent, then your 
in trouble because the thing that you really need you will not have. There was a certain crisis. There was a certain cry that shows us that they were not alive. Notice in verse number 6. At midnight again there, came a, there was a cry made. And notice what the cry said. Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. <laughs> isn't that what this is all about? Isn't that what the commotion... Isn't that what everyone's been preparing? So hey, let's just go. But the one command that needed to be done the most, they could not fulfill. And isn't it amazing, haven't you watched religious movements, how people can easily slide into those movements and follow those movements, line up with those movements and be a part of those movements and and accept the instructions of those movements, whether it's Catholicism or Hinduism or uh, Muslims or even down to Baptists or whatever, all the little systems, so many people. And people say, how in the world do other people follow that? And it's, it's just easy for humanity to, to fall into the instructions and, and the commands and the systems of this world. They can easily do that. They can carry their little lamp. They can dress their little dress. They can run out with the rest of everybody. But the one command that they needed to obey, they could not command, uh, obey because they didn't have what it took to obey that command. <laughs> I'm glad tonight I'm not obeying the commands of men I'm not following the rules and regulations of religion I'm glad that the Holy Ghost and the Word of God got a hold of me before religion did I didn't know anything about religion but it's the commands of God's Word in your heart and the Holy Ghost that gives you the ability to obey the commands of God they will not be grievous. He has come. Go ye out to meet him. They could not obey that command. There was a difference there. There's a difference there. And the shame of it is, I, I run into a lot of preachers that feel so good if they can get all their church members to obey them. Just do exactly what I tell you to do and you will be saintly. And some of you will die and go to hell doing what I told you to do. And it's a whole lot easier for you to do what I told you to do than to be able to hear and follow the commands of God and what He tells you to do. (laughs) Isn't it amazing how we just like for somebody else to tell us what to do? Huh? It is much simpler. When the Lord's dealing with my heart about doing something, I'd sure like to come to Brother Lester and say, Brother Lester, here's what I'm wrestling over. Tell me what to do. And he being a man of God saying, well, I wouldn't touch that in a million, million miles. If the Holy Ghost don't tell you what to do, I can't tell you what to do. Huh? But boy, don't you like to be among God's children that are listening to the precepts of the Word of God and the Holy Ghost and they may be headed in an entirely different direction than what you would even imagine, but the Holy Spirit's operating in their hearts and in their lives and got them doing what they need to do. But many folks will just follow all the religious rigmarole all the way down to the end. And it's not saying what these other five were doing was wrong. What they were doing was right. 
these first five were just joining in and really didn't have what it took when the real command came. And it was a simple command. Go you out to meet him. <laughs> and they said, hmm, I, I've done everything up to this point, but I, I just can't do that. And they couldn't because they were different. There was a distinction. In the command, in the cry, in the, in the crises. And there's a distinction. Verse number 10. In the conclusion. And while they went to buy. <laughs> the bridegroom came. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came. And they, and this blesses me, they that were ready went in with him to the marriage. And did you notice it? The door was what? Shut. They were left on the outside. The door was shut. <laughs> now you can bring that to any conclusion you want to for anybody you want to, but all I can tell you is if you ain't ready, honey, the door is going to be shut. And once she's shut, you can't pry it open. But you know what? And and I, and I want to, I want to I want to end with this, this note this, this distinction in, with this thought of the closing in mind. But but I want to think about what's going on on this side of the door and what's going on on this side of the door. On this side of the door, they are left out. They did not have the oil. They're left out. And they come and they cry to get in, but they cannot get in. They cannot because they are not allowed in. They're left out. But I ask you something, what do you think was happening on this side of the door? Huh? So many times we read that text and, and we ought to mourn and we ought to be burdened and we ought to cry for our loved ones in this world that, that are not ready. And for many, the many folks that sat on our pews, they're, they're not ready. But I'll tell you something. Once he gets here and the door is closed and you get on the other side, we ain't going to be fiddling around on the inside saying, well, I'll tell you, I guess we'll just call everything off. We're going to have to postpone this thing. It looks like we ain't got enough to have a, a wedding feast. Everybody sitting around in gloom and doom. <laughs> and they're just talking about, well, it's just, we just, I'll tell you, it's just hard to eat thinking about what's happening on the outside. Oh, I got good news, children. If you're ready, there ain't going to be no sadness on the other side of that door. 
And we ain't going to be sitting around worried about who ain't there. My warning to folks is that you better be ready so you can enter in because if you ain't, the door's shut. And on the inside, do you know what happens to the, the wedding celebration? Huh? Now we do a little, just a little of it. When they leave out the church, we throw a little rice on them. But I'm going to tell you, they have a real celebration in the Middle East when they have a wedding. It is a real celebration. And on the inside, I cannot help but believe that the, that the party has begun. The celebration has started. The wedding has taken place. And they're having a time on the inside. And I'll tell you something else. On the inside, there's not going to be a whole bunch of empty seats. We somehow have the idea that we need to go around to this world and get real pitiful and as if God is, uh, you know, on the verge of, you know, bang, he's just scared to death. He ain't going to get enough. Satan's going to beat him on the numbers if we ain't careful. And so we're just going to go around and say, please, pretty please. God said pretty. No, he didn't say pretty please. Most of those verses in the, in the, in the Bible are not. 99.9, probably all of them are not invitations. They're commands. You better get in. Because once that door shuts, you're left out of what's happening on the inside. And I cannot believe that he went out with a hundred and ever come back with ninety and nine. I believe on the inside that every seat was filled. I believe it's all going to be taken care of. You think about it now. Do you think we're going to get... Do you think that, that when, the, when the marriage... Do you think there's going to be all these empty seats in heaven and the Father's going to say, well, I've done the best I could and I, I just couldn't get a full house. Matter of fact, we little below half. <laughs> if you don't want in, somebody does. And there'll be somebody in that seat. And I often tell folks, if you don't want in, that's fine. You don't want. You don't have to go in. You can go ahead and live your life, and the world can play its little religious and its little religious systems and things like that. But I tell you something: when we get to heaven, it's going to be a full house, and we're going to be praising God, and we're going to be worshiping, and we're going to be celebrating. What the Lamb has done for us. So, I hope you can understand this. I usually tell folks, if you don't want to go, there ain't no room, no how. Hmm? Now, don't go tell folks I said they couldn't go. I said, if, you, if you're ready, you can go. But if you, don't, if you don't want to, you can't go no how. He's not just dragging anybody in. Oh, we've got three more seats. Wait a minute, open that door up and bring three of them in anyway. <laughs> no, they're all left out. There's no room, no how. We got a full house. <laughs> There's no room in heaven for rebellion. There's no room in heaven for ungodliness. There's no room in heaven for the God rejectors. And besides, if you let them in, it would be heaven. Sounds harsh, but I'm glad Hitler's not going to be in heaven. I'm glad Jezebel's not going to be in heaven. I want everybody to be there that will trust Christ and follow Christ. But I don't want this outfit in heaven that when they get there, they're going to turn it in to what's down here. This is for folks 
that are ready. Genuine that are ready. And I'm not just talking about was ready yesterday and something happened. Ready today and, you know, about like the one fellow they said, are you saved? He said, well, yeah, I've been saved off and on for 20 years. (laughs) This ain't no off and on thing. No. If you ain't ready, you ain't going in. But if you are, thank God, look what we're going into. (laughs) A celebration. Showed the difference. That they didn't have on the inside the genuine stuff that it took to get them in. I'm glad that this thing is more than just formalities. It's more than just religious acting. But I'm glad there's a reality of the Spirit of God that can operate in our hearts and lives. And in the power of that Spirit, we can obey that command. When it says in that hour, the same power of that Spirit that's letting you obey that command tonight is the same power of that Spirit that will let you obey that command when He shows up. And it says, go ye out to meet Him. And in the power of that Spirit, you're able to meet the bridegroom. (laughs) I'm glad we're going somewhere. I'm glad Jesus is coming. I was reminded of the uh, said to be true story that I read of a young lady back before the days of electricity. She was a rebellious young lady, just lived for herself. She's laying in her bed one night reading a book by the light of an oil lamp. And right in the middle of reading that book, that lamp went out. It's total darkness. Nonchalantly, she said, Well, there must not be any oil in that lamp. And no sooner had she said it until the Lord allowed those very words to bounce off the walls of that dark room and shoot back into her heart like a dagger. There's no oil in that lamp. And when it shot back into her heart, she cried out and said, Oh my God, there's no oil in my lamp. I'm not ready. I'm not ready. And in that darkness, cried out to God to fill the lamp of her heart with the oil of heaven to make her ready for when the bridegroom comes. (laughs) I want that readiness, don't you? I want that readiness. A genuine readiness. Let's stand by our heads.